I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. This episode, we're taking a look at one of the biggest frustrations out there in the sector, recruitment and retention. With subsidies flowing and the market model growing, Australia's early education sector needs more educators and teachers than ever before. But with TAFEs and unis producing less graduates and turnover rates not getting any better, we seem to be facing a growing crisis in how to actually ensure professional and qualified educators are working in services. To discuss all these issues and more, Lisa and I are joined by Mel Armstrong. Mel is the director of Hamilton's Education and Care, a recruitment organisation. Mel has a background as an early childhood educator and teacher, including working as a centre director. So Mel, you've been involved in recruitment in the sector for a long time, but um, can you tell us a bit about your background? I'm particularly interested in hearing about your uh, you know, career as an educator and a teacher and a director before getting into the recruitment space. Yes, so uh, basically I had a love of teaching from an early age. It was all the games I used to play all the time when I was little. And also because of my Italian background, I had lots of Italian teachers and art teachers in my family. Um, So I would often, before I even started school, just go to um you know, my lessons with my auntie and she was an Italian teacher. And so I was drawn into it like that. Um, But I finished high school and decided that early childhood was where I wanted to be. Um, I did my diploma through Petersham TAFE and I absolutely loved every minute of it. I loved my trainers. I loved what I was learning. I loved the seed that they planted in me about being a lifelong learner. Um, and then I started to work, uh, I did my prac in a work-based childcare centre and, um, stayed there for a while and worked around amazing people. Um, and then I went back to uni at UNE and again, absolutely loved what I was learning, loved the, the lecturers that I was corresponding with. They cared about me. They cared about my learning. Um, and I was studying while I was Um, directing so they were so supportive Um, I worked within a private based centre for a year and then I worked in a community based centre for 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 many years and that was uniting and they were just a brilliant employer Um, and yeah it really philosophically I felt that was a really good match Um, Due to a personal issue, I decided to um, leave all of my safety nets and head to London. Um, And I was teaching in a nursery and a reception um, at Vauxhall, which is an inner city London um, primary school. And that was my first exposure to that early childhood being within the education system. And it was great experience. Um, I literally came back to Sydney and met Bernadette Dunn in her recruitment role. I was actually looking for another directing role and she said, I'd like you to join my team in early childhood recruitment. So, um, so, yeah, Bern was amazing and, again, I really loved being in that space because I was able to connect with the people who I you know, were like-minded and I could watch from afar everything that they were doing and connecting them to the right, you know, centres and places and then watching the magic unfold. So 
that's a little bit about me or a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you've you now set up your own recruitment firm, is that right? Or? Yes. So um, I started in, uh, in early childhood recruitment in 2006 and in 2014, um, 1st of July 2014, I've been working at Hamilton's and this is, yeah, I'm directing um, my own early childhood boutique um, agency, yeah. Wow, it's been a long, oh, interesting career. I'm really <laughs> impressed that you're so enthusiastic. A lot of people that we talk to, you know, don't have that same enthusiasm for study and for the sector and, yeah. Lisa, not everyone's as bitter and cynical as we are. We, we know that. Oh, true, true. Do you yeah, know, okay. I actually think I found school a little bit harder, but then when I got to TAFE and uni, it, it was something that was I just really enjoyed and I think what I noticed was the, and I know I shouldn't say it, but it's it was the passion of the teachers and trainers who were, you know, guiding me and teaching me and evoking that um, interest in what could be if we push some boundaries and we try things differently and if we, you know, really enjoy what we do and see it as the most important job in the world and, and career. Yeah. Yes, so I think that's where it comes from, not from well, me. I hope we've people. still got those teachers out there that can inspire people like you. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. I think we do. I know that lots of the Petersham TAFE trainers are still there. <laughs> Good. Um, and listen, you recently said to me, and, and I was quite shocked, that recruitment is harder now than at any time it's been th through your recruitment career yeah so yeah. what have you noticed is happening so look Lise I said that because basically I started in 2006 2007 with with Byrne um, and up until about last year we really as a recruitment agency working across two different recruitment agency we re very rarely worked on any other roles except for your ECT roles, your director roles, your coordinator in bush roles, and your higher level management roles, which were the ones where, you know, we talk about that candidate shortage. But I would say since the beginning of this year, um, we've been asked by our clients to help with recruiting everything from trainees to cert threes to diplomas. So this was the first red flag for, you know, for me. Um, you know, and our sector do their own advertising and, and they usually like to fill roles themselves. It's when they can't do it that they, you know, usually come to us or, you know, we've got some clients who come to us straight away because, you know, they would rather be doing other things, um, which we totally get. But the volume of applicants that we have seen in the past in, you know, even the Cert 3 space, we're seeing real gaps appearing now. Um, and like I said, I, we were only ever recruiting ECT, those higher level roles where there were gaps, but now we're definitely doing Cert 3 and diploma roles where, you know, that bush space definitely has massive gaps and we're recruiting all levels in that space as well. Um, That's tragic. It really is. 
Um, it really is tragic. And I think by the time they get to us, they're already stretched. So for us, we've been the directors. My team are all early, uh, early the consultants are all early childhood qualified. So we've sat in the director's seat. We've, you know, worn the ECT hat. We've been the diploma. We've been the cert three. We've been thrown into the kitchen when there wasn't a cook, you know. So we understand. <laughs> We're not supposed to tell people outside the sector how often that happens. <laughs> so we understand the impact and we understand where they're at by the time they get to us. So I think that's the other thing we've been feeling especially deflated because we were that solution. We were that space where they could come and we could give them something that they didn't have and that extra exposure and that extra opportunity. Um, but it's really hard when we also are struggling to fill their vacancies. It's it's really affected us in that way of we've got to do something, we've got to say something, and that's why I came to you because I know how amazing you and the 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 team are, you and Liam and and Leanne, the triple L, <laughs> at um at you know bringing our sector together when there's something that is bigger than us, and I think it's bigger than just us at the moment. That's really interesting. But do you so in your experience, sort of crossing sort of both parts, so working in the sector and then working in that recruitment space, do you do you have a sense of you know what, why you think this is happening? Why we've sort of reached this? Because I actually agree with you. It does feel like it's very it's a very difficult time for recruitment. I think full stop at the moment. Yes. So Liam, I think we are losing a lot of people in our sector. Um, I say I say that our temp our temp space is thriving. It's our perm space that's really struggling. And so we're talking to cert threes, and potentially there's not as much time in our sector for people. People have to almost hit the ground running straight away, and that can be. Uh, and and you know. Our sector is very giving. Everyone wants to support and guide. But sometimes when you don't have that time, you can get frustrated and just want someone to get in there and just do it. And sometimes that expectation of our new grads is possibly um, pushing them away or they're not, you know, they've joined the sector to make a difference. So if they feel like they're not doing that, then, you know, they're moving on. Um, I think that's one that's thing. Sad. Yeah, it is sad because, um, you know, I, I think I know when I joined the sector, everyone was giving of time. Everyone had time to invest and share and and spend with me to teach me and, and you know, pass on knowledge and all of that sort of thing. And I think that's, something that our sector does especially well but because we're so stretched that possibly we're not able to give that like we were um Mm. I think that's a really good point. I know if Leanne was here, she'd she'd want to hit this point because I think we can sometimes get a bit um like the 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 headline issue is so sort of uh big and almost overwhelming that we've got you know that just 
finding the right amount of qualified educators to meet ratios and do those kind of things and, and that we know there's this kind of um, looming issue with not, not enough graduates coming through both TAFE and uni to meet requirements. Yeah. That, that sort of becomes the headline issue. But that's a really yeah. important point you just highlighted is that underneath that sort of big issue, there's all these little sub-issues that fall down, which is exactly right. There's the, the stress and, and frustrations on educators and centres, and it means that people don't don't have time to do things that Leanne talks about all the time, so like uh, you know pre-service mentoring and all those different kind of things that actually, what, it's not just about getting educators into roles. It's about then how are they supported to, to understand the sector, understand the philosophy of the organisational service they're working for. That Yeah, that's a really important point to highlight. So, Liam, are you finding the same thing? Like you work, you know, in an organisation that employs a number of educators. How hard is it getting? It's tough. So so I work in a really specific context in the ACT, but my sense is in talking with people uh, in other states and territories, including, you know, tonight, UML, it's been probably the toughest I can remember. So I've worked in the sector for about 16 years now, um, and it's been... It, it's yeah it's been it's been the tightest and toughest i can remember it for a long period of time in the act right. we've had this big explosion of new uh for-profit centers so lots of developers buying up land and lots of large new centers opening and i think it's been this combination of multiple factors so it's not just the new centers are opening it's also that every new center these days seems to be 120 or 150 place so the educators required to staff those centers are becoming exponentially higher um, but we just know there's not enough graduates coming through. So finding people to fill roles has just become, honestly, and, and this conversation is quite timely tonight because even just uh, in the work I do, the last few months have been really, that's been a really tricky part of, of working in the support team, has been supporting centres to, to fill those roles. So, yeah, Lisa, absolutely, I'm entirely, uh, entirely in agreement with Mel. Yeah. And it's, it's funny really- because, sorry, go ahead, Mel. Do you know, it's really hard for us as a sector to say that we're struggling with things because we always have this idea that, you know, if there is something that's happening, you reflect on it and you find new ways and you find different ways of doing and you create and you... um, And so for us to say, I'm really struggling and I know we all are and it's not about your centre being more attractive than mine or your organisation having, you know, better staff retention um, thing. It, it's, it's actually about the fact that we really have this, we are, you know, this small pool that we're all pulling from is really, really stretched and, you know, it's not anything that we are or aren't doing. It's bigger than us. Yeah, Look, I'm even finding that this is true for me as a consultant. I've got um, two separate clients I'm working with, both of whom need a large number of educators for specific roles, and they're both really struggling. To the extent that one of them actually thought that it was coming, you know, like their inability to recruit was making them borderline unviable as an organisation. So we did, you know, submissions and got some um, federal government funding to, you know, just look at the recruitment space. And even having that funding, they're still struggling to get people across the board. And I, you know, I 
thought it was something about, you know, the, the way the organisation was going about recruitment or about the the sorts of roles that they were recruiting for. But maybe, in fact, it's got nothing to do with that. Maybe it's just becoming this hard for everyone. Yeah. So is that, yeah. is that similar? So I, I don't know, um, Mel, if you have sort of, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm imagining this network of recruitment consultants all around Australia, but do you, do, are you hearing these stories, like, or either of you hearing these stories in other states and territories as well? Yeah, so I spoke to a colleague who has um, departments in Victoria as well, and she said Victoria was even you know, in a worse position than her New South Wales office. So that was a really, that was a big surprise for me considering I sit back and go, oh, yeah, but the, you know, Victorian state government are doing more than what our government is, but um, it's still having an impact and a negative impact in their perm space in Victoria as well, more so than their New South Wales office. Yeah, and I noticed that the Western Australian government um, was reducing fees for Cert 3s, et cetera. So, you know, um, uh, yeah. That, yeah, they must be having something there as well. But, of course, the federal government's got an answer, haven't they? Oh, haven't yeah. they just employed, what's his name, Scott Cam? So to... yeah, Scott Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to spend our taxpayer money. Yeah, somehow I don't think he's going to be getting any educator sign-ups. <laughs> so now one of the we, – we've known for quite a while that the teacher recruitment I think has always been a challenge. So when I think back to you know the roles I've had, that, that that's always been an ongoing challenge and that's part of the um, sort of the professionalisation of the sector and as those those requirements, you know, the um, the the – the recruiting of teachers, particularly when there's so many other, um, you know, the government sector or, or you know, standalone preschools, all those kind of things, they can often offer better conditions and wa- better wages. That that's kind of been an ongoing issue with the sector. But what we seem to be seeing recently is that this is really, as you were sort of saying earlier, really drifted into the diploma role and even certificate three educators. Yeah. Um, is that something you noticed as well? Definitely. Um, Definitely the Cert 3 and diplomas, like I said, Liam and Lisa, we we rarely ever did any recruitment, but we've, on our job board, we've got quite a few Cert 3 and diploma roles to um, fill. Um, And it's, and it's quite, yeah, it's, it's a trend that has only continued, um, and, you know, that the Ush space as well has always had their, you know, their limitations and their um, candidate shortage. But, I mean, it's it's even, you know, their coordinator space, their Cert 3s, they're even saying, some of our clients are saying, look, where we've said to you it's a Cert 3, even for a casual, we're happy to now, you know, open it to those untrained at this stage because we just need people. Um, but we haven't had to go down that in the in the temp space. It's it's fine. You can you can ask for what you want and you can get it. It's just in the perm space that we're seeing this uh, this trend. And what role do you think that? low wages but more than low wages the you know knowledge now of how bad wages are in the sector is impacting upon that i definitely think that's um an impact 
Um, and, you know, I think the fact that we, you know, people want flexibility and, you know, they want to work from home some days and they, you know, they want hours so that they can drop off and pick up the kids. And so our sector has to balance that flexibility with also how does that impact the rest of the team? How does that impact comply, you know, their ability to comply. So I think, you know, our sector tries so hard with what they've got. You know, everyone's being as creative as they can, but, you know, we're up against it. You know, we really are up against it. And I think that's the reality that we're facing is, okay, so, you know, the, the paying conditions we need, they need to improve. And there are other things that you know, that are happening outside of us that we have no control over, but we we can advocate together and we can say, look, this isn't good enough. We need we need help with this. Um, I, I think, when, Lisa, I have to say that when you wrote your piece, it felt like you were Notre Dame because <laughs> you just predicted everything that, you know, the fact that diploma early childhood diploma um, has dropped by 63% over the past year. Um, unis are only pr producing two to 3,000 new ECTs to the 7,000 more we need to meet the 34,000 teachers needed by 2022. <laughs> like all of these things, it was, it's, it's really, um, you know, it's in front of us. We can see this is what we are facing. So I want to move slightly from that recruitment piece because I do think we can spend, and rightly so, and, and all the issues you've highlighted are, are very important and, and you're entirely right. I don't think they're being discussed enough either in the sector or, you know, in, in a sort of government level. We'll be right back. Are you listening to our Exploring the NQS series? If you're a supporter of the show on Patreon, you're not only helping to keep the show going, you'll also get access to an extra podcast where I explore every element of the national quality standard one at a time. It's a great way to get yourself up to speed with the NQS, uh, consider different perspectives and grow your own professional development. Each episode is only 15 minutes. Just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click support the show in the menu to sign up and start listening for as little as $1 a month. All right, back to the show. I want to move on to as well the the other challenge that I think this feeds into is um, is the the pressure it sort of puts on services when um, you you have roles you need to fill and you don't have a lot of candidates coming through. So the balance between the stress you're facing to which are which are real stresses. So what? what uh, sorry, I see. See, Mel, I'm now waffling again. I'm, I'm, my, no, you're not. my habit is to uh, to to do three paragraphs and then add a question mark at the end. I'm going to try and stop myself doing that. But what can happen <laughs> is you have roles to fill, you've got ratios to meet, you have operational requirements. So the the, the pressure or the the instinct yeah. to kind of just hire whoever wanders through the door is quite strong. And it kind of I've always and I've probably been guilty of this as myself is that you'll hear people go, well, you know, you you just need to find the right person for the role no matter how long it takes. And operationally, that's often can be quite challenging. So, I mean, particularly if someone who's working in the recruitment space, how do you see services navigating or not that sort of balance between this is the stress they're facing from a recruitment level, but making sure that hiring the right person is critically important as well? Yeah. 
Exactly. Do you know, I see our sector struggling with this a lot because they are making decisions about someone with with that pressure of, you know, I've, I've had the job ad up for six months and this person comes along and no, they're not the perfect match, but I need to release some of this stress and pressure from the rest of my team. I always try and, you know, we've chosen to be really upfront about where the sector is. So when I have those conversations with our sector, you know, we say, look, we understand the negative impact of a recruitment placement that goes wrong. So, you know, it's, it's such a balance because you you are feeling a place but then potentially if it's not the right placement then there's a lot of work that goes on behind that um so it's that's a real true. struggle that's okay. true but mel with one of my clients i'm at the stage of almost advising them if it's got two legs and a beating heart yes. hire it because yes. You know, if yeah. they don't hire people, then, yeah. you know, they're not going to be able to able to offer education and care and they just, they need to get people into those positions. That's right, Lisa. And the look, I also have to say, and this, you know, I, I, I struggle with this as well, there is quality in the temporary space that can give you consistency in... I mean, there are some amazing educators who are working in that temporary space. Um, but I know that children need to build those strong relationships and those consistent relationships. So it is an absolute dilemma. It's a it's a dilemma that every director is facing and um, every coordinator is facing and they're trying to do things differently and creatively and but, but maybe that's what we need to be looking at more is what, um, you know, what can services do to, to retain educators given how difficult it is? And for me, one of the the real things is to look at so why so many people are working tempor- in temporary and casual jobs. And yeah. so often it's because they've got children of their own and that enables them to... You know, say no, I'm not available for this for work on a day when their child needs them at school or their child needs them at their own centre or, yeah, you know, like that. Yeah, do you know that's true? And there are lots of new grads in the temporary space who are using that space to almost be able to hit the ground running in the in the practical sense. Um before they actually then say, okay, I'm going to take on the responsibility of the paperwork. And I know our sector, you know, have a bit of an issue with them choosing that. And I always say that if they are able to see what they need to focus on and learn that before they get to the the paper, then we shouldn't begrudge that do you know yeah Um, of course yeah and because everyone you know we're talking to cert threes about you know who is a theorist who resonates with your 
with the you know what you believe about children and how they learn and they're saying but I don't I can't answer that yet we're saying okay you need to be able to answer that you need to have your own philosophy and understanding and you need to understand that so that you Gee, can it's follow. a lot to expect a cert three to have yeah, isn't it? Um, it is Liam would you expect that of a cert three not necessarily I mean I would expect you know a, a, a reasonable understanding of the early years learning framework and again not not reciting yeah. a chapter and verse because actually I don't like the ability to memorize something I don't find is that um, impressive anyway. But the, the ability to say, look, here is how I would use it. Because important to remember the EYLF is obviously built on theoretical perspectives that people may not be able to articulate at that stage in their career. But the the thinking that's gone into the outcomes and the principles and practices of the EYLF should be something that you know the, I, I think should be reasonably being out expected because this is the kind of this is the what's that management term? It's the wicked problem, I think, of the sector. Because you know, I was I, I had to restrain myself from speaking earlier, Lisa, when you said you were advising people to hire people with a heartbeat and two arms and two legs. Because I, I thought that. you'd be interrupted. I, them I think, uh, uh, but if this is where we've got to the sector, that that's hugely problematic. Because separate to the the issues around whether the service has a capacity to take on an educator who otherwise is, you know, is keen, is willing to learn and may not have all the specific knowledge, but the service yeah. may be able to take them on and train them. But we have to think in, 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 the, in the world we're in now, we're thinking about particularly child protection and child safety, that we need to actually, the, the, the child safe standards are going to make the sector or should be making the sector now take longer with recruitment, ask more questions and be much clearer around the kind of people that are even entering centres. But how do we so Heather, how do we how do we match that up with the actual, you know, issues facing services, which are the operational challenges? I've got no idea what the answer to that is, but it but it can't be that we're at the point, which we used to joke about, you know, five or ten years ago. Yeah. Whereas basically if the person is standing up, then you know we'll give them a trial. Yeah. So what what advice do you give services, Mel? What do you say? Yeah, like, do you know? We, it's that thing of it only takes one applicant, and that one applicant may be the perfect one. Um, but we are all in the this small pool, and you know, like Liam said, we have to look at that potential, and if someone has you know, if it, they're not ticking every single box, but they have that potential and they have that, uh, you know, that 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 wanting to learn and grow and then give them the opportunity and mentor and support them because the more we give to our sector, the more we get back and, you know, that that's, that's definitely where we're at because we don't have the um, thousand applicants like we well hundreds of applicants like we used to have um, you know they are less and and they are you know just seeing seeing what each can bring and um, and also knowing that it's a it's that contribution to the sector and and what we give comes back um that's been the advice at the moment and just because we know that everyone's struggling but you you, you can't just give someone a heartbeat a job because 
like I said, the negative impacts of when a recruitment goes wrong is even more is is worse than um, you know than waiting for the right person. True, and theoretically, even people like Peter Dutton have got heartbeats, but I'm not sure I'd like to see him <laughs> in an educator role. <laughs> I think. Oh, sorry, Mel, after you. Yeah, so so what about you, Liam? Is so you're saying that it's 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 the same in Canberra and I'm saying I've spoken to someone in Victoria you know, who it's the same in Victoria. You know, what what should be the advice? What do you think should be the advice that we give each other and Wow, I'm not used and, to being interviewed, Mel. I I <laughs> normally like asking the questions and not having to answer them. <laughs> you definitely work in recruitment, Mel. You've just this is interesting. Um, do you know what? what the, the, so the the first thing to say is, is, as with as with any systemic problem, which is what this is. So this is a systemic issue. This is yeah. an issue that touches on universities, TAFEs, uh, government policy brackets lack thereof, um, and and the interplay of the market model in terms of the. The, you know, and a incentives for developers to open up a whole bunch of new centres and a new, you know, early childhood organisation launching, you know, every every week it seems at the moment. So, there, so solving those systemic issues is going to take time. It's going to take a huge issue, and it's probably um, going to take some sort of you know crisis, some sort of actual you know organisation or group of services basically saying we can't continue to operate in this way. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of who gets to that point. But one of the things that the the flip side of this, and I'm going to try and because Leanne's not here, so one of us has to stay positive, Lisa. So I'm going to try and do it here. Yeah, okay, be positive. I'm going to do it. So <laughs> the experience, it's interesting. So we have had so recruitment has been difficult over the last little while, but we've also made it difficult for ourselves because we've we've made sure we've we've really stuck to high standards across the centres around who is working in centres, but also how educators are supported and 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 managed if, if, if their performance isn't meeting particular expectations and particularly around engagement and interactions with children because um, turning the recruitment sort of conversation a little bit into that sort of team-building conversation, which is another thing that the sector is always talking about, is how we can get to, how, how can we get teams to work together well. What we... And I, I sort of talk about this a lot in, in a few workshops I do and when I speak is that what we hope with team building is that we can put up a poster in the in the staff room and take people out to bowling once a month and that'll magically create great teams. That's Everyone knows that's actually not true. What creates great teams is hiring the right people, um, yeah. getting getting rid of people that are not are not either you know succeeding in terms of their 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 paid employment role which is supporting children's learning and well-being but actively undermining a culture of high expectations in your team it's one of the we'll have to do a separate episode i think on performance management because i have some views on that yeah. and i think the sector is really bad at talking about that because we're all largely empathetic people who want to want everyone to succeed it's not great it's, you don't want to be having conversations about you know having to move people on you know out of your organization or your service but we also know that there are people who just don't who you know contribute to toxic work environments and the best thing you can do is move them on so the team building is this interplay between moving on people who aren't working and bringing in positive people and we've worked really hard at that as an organization to and the teams you know in, in all of the centers at the moment are genuinely some of the most incredible educators i've ever had the fortune of working with but that's been a process of working really hard and making things more difficult for ourselves by you know fought by really working hard to identify um, where people need support and where people need to have um, their performance improved uh 
but the positive part of that is when you when you do that when you invest the time and the energy and yes the stress and frustration in really focusing on having the right teams working together and and crucially that those teams feel valued and supported and advocated for by people in leadership roles above them the incredible things can happen so the work that happens in those centers is then absolutely amazing because what this conversation at the end of the day i think the the, the title in this episode will be recruitment or and retention or you know i, I unless i can think of something yeah. less less boring than that which i may not be able to so we focus on the structural issues around there but what that is about is people that's about educators and the only people who yeah. can deliver positive outcomes for children are the people they're the educators so you have to approach it from that perspective which is getting the right mix of people there's actually no more important thing from a management in my perspective you know i don't particularly care whether you're regio inspired i don't particularly care how you know well designed your playground is whether you offer coffee at the door or whatever at the end of the day the only important thing that will actually shift things and, and deliver positive outcomes for children and families is the educators you have working in space they're doing the work so you have to invest the time and recruitment and retention is a huge part of that but if you can but I, I guess what I'm trying to get to at the end of this very long, I think this has been one sentence. It's impressive. If you if you go through that process and you sort of hold during the stressful and difficult times, what you will end up with is a team that is succeeding and thriving and that builds successful and thriving teams because bringing new people into a team that isn't working, it's, it's, far, it's, it's more likely that person won't stay. But if you're bringing people into succeeding and thriving teams, yeah. people who otherwise would not have succeeded will rise to that challenge. And that and that that's the goal I think you want. Absolutely, oh, for sure. That yeah. was such a good speech. I agree with that. I think it might have been a positive I, I, rant. I don't often do positive it, rants. It, it was, <laughs> but Liam, just so that we don't step out of character here, I'll take on a negative thing. And I, I alluded to this a bit before, but I think it's really true. We have a. a um, a sector that's 97% women. Women always feel the pull of family, you know, women that have family, that have children. We don't actually know what proportion of our, our workforce has children because it's not a question that's asked in any workforce censuses. But I'm, I'm pretty sure, given their love of children, that it would be quite a high number. We know that most of our workforce is in that 20 to 40-year-old bracket. It's the majority of our um, our staff at that age. And we also know the stress that the parents whose children we're caring for face because of their work and, you know, their caring responsibilities to their children. But somehow we act in the sector as if our own staff don't have those same caring um, responsibilities. We act like we're doing them a favour if we give them a day off to go to their child's, you know, school or childcare Christmas party. We act as if, you know, we're doing them a favour if we let them come in late because somebody's got a, a doctor's appointment. We have to think about why so many staff are working temporary jobs. And I believe it's because they get that flexibility that they can't have in a really strict shift situation. And I think, you know, we'd, our services would be doing ourselves and our staff a lot of favours if we made our workforce as flexible as other workforces are now becoming to enable them to do that parenting. Yeah. 
well, I was feeling positive there for a sec, Lisa. So this is <laughs> this is the diabolical problem, though. So this is where you know, as someone who you know helps oversee a number of centres, when you have mandated ratios and you have mandated um, uh, operational requirements, how flexible can services be? And this is honestly one of the big, and I sort of, I think I talked about this in a previous episode, this is one of the biggest challenges I find in my role is where I do have a lot of flexibility in my work, but I know that educators don't. And I, I don't think there's a solution for that except a systemic issue around, well, when you have a market model, when you have the only people who can who can fund educator wages at the moment are our f- families through fees. Yeah. I don't think there's a solution. In, as the sector currently stands at the moment, I'm happy to be proved wrong, and I'm sure there are some in, some innovative things that are being done around the edges, but I don't think there's a solution to that at the moment. The sector itself would have to change. I think there are solutions, and educators are finding them themselves. That's why the largest proportion of our sector works part-time. That's how they're managing it, you know, by doing that. So maybe, you know, your best stuff that are working part-time, you actually say to them, how many days would suit you to work a week? And if we were allowed to, if we were able to be flexible about, you know, allowing you time off here and there, would you work more days, you know? And then just, you know, having that extra person on that can, you know, that can, those extra casuals that can fill those spaces when that person says, no, I'm out of here for half a day for, you know, a family reason. So I agree with you in principle, Lisa, but even just in that sentence you've told me, so you've got people working part-time, you've got extra casuals to cover with, how many extra educators have we, have you just needed to hire? Just in that one sentence you've, you've listed there. Except that you're presuming that the person that takes the extra hour off or two hours off is being paid for it well no but I, i'm not coming at it but but from the from a from a ratio perspective you you there has to be people there working directly with children and i'd say if you're working so tightly to the ratios that you can't like you know you don't have 10 staff in an organization that employs 20 that suddenly want monday morning between nine and ten off you know, you have one or two. If you're working so close to ratios that you can't cover that, then probably that therein lies your recruitment problem. That's why we see so many people in our Facebook pages saying, I'm out of here, I can't do this because my service insists upon running a, across the um, yeah. under-the-roof ratios and it's too stressful. I, I've been absolutely horrified to find that we're having staff who are literally looking after four babies by themselves so that they're in a baby's room and only has four babies and they're it. They're the staff member in that room. I, and that was never how ratios were intended. No, mm-hmm. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to go back to Mel for a sec, but I, I agree. I, I agree with all of your points, Lisa. And we, you know, at at, at Northside, we we have additional educators across the centre, but those are people that need to be recruited who may be seeking their own flexible requirements as well. So this tends to spiral out. So it's it's often not as simple as just having someone else who can come in and replace particular things. I I'd be interested in a survey on why educators are choosing part time. I don't necessarily buy in its entirety that that's a choice people are making in some cases it may be that 
services are doing it because occupancy is, is up and down in different ways. But all of those decisions around flexibility, which I agree need to be pursued and need to be looked at, and we've got, you know, there are examples of them across the sector, but all of them require a huge amount of management to ensure that operational requirements are still being met and that the standards we're setting for, you know, making sure we don't get to those points where we have educators with, you know, alone working with children uh, it, it's that problem around that they as soon as you make a decision it spirals out in terms of ensuring that at the fundamental level you're meeting those requirements it it is it is a diabolical problem because every situation is unique as well Look, maybe maybe it does Liam, but at first we need a lot of services to have that discussion about if we're Working in an industry that enables women to work, how can we allow to allow the women that work in the industry to work? Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Mm. So, Mel, if you were the, the the boss of the government, yeah, imagine you're sitting there in Scott Morris, Morrison's chair, and you've got forty eight hours to do whatever you want to do to fix recruitment. What would you do? I would look at the Cert 3 and Diploma um, enrolments, which are very low compared to what we need. I would definitely um, inject some money into funding um, Diploma Cert 3 um, into, in, uh, into that space. And then I would also do the same with ECTs. I would look at the fact that we don't have enough ECTs. In fact, we uh, let's have a look at the statistics on that. Someone no, else looking not. up statistics on the podcast. Lisa, are you feeling threatened? <laughs> no, I suspect I'm not because I suspect she's going back to an article I've written. <laughs> I'm going back to your article. <laughs> we we'll have to link to this article in the show notes, Liam. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So we need 34,000 teachers by 20, 2022. Um, so we are, it's, it's inevitable. This crisis is going to happen um, unless we just attract and we look at not only the training, but the workplace. And, you know, we are up against all of those things about we, we are women working in the early childhood space and how do we support us? How do we give us flexibility? How does that all work? And, you know, at the at the end of the day, the children and, and what's best for children and, you know, balancing all of those things. But as a sector, I think we need to just get behind the fact that this isn't going to get better if we don't uh, advocate and, and work together and get some solutions because... Um, we're, we're sitting in the middle of this crisis and it's only going to get wor worse. Um, and, yes, sorry. Yeah. yeah. We've got to do something about it. I, I think one of the things that I'd do, first of all, if I was the Prime Minister, yeah. um, apart from funding professional development and doing a proper workforce survey with the right sorts of questions, is I'd also make all placements, paid placements, because increasingly I'm hearing of diploma educators who can't, who are studying their early childhood teaching degrees but can't afford the time off to do the placements that they need to as part of their degrees. That's 
That's a good. Yeah, I I like that one, Lisa. That's. I thought it was good. <laughs> Liam, you're a bit silent there. <laughs> this is too much of a Lisa loving, so I'm I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with a reason not to like it. But no, I think it's perfect. I mean, my only suggestion would be extending that to um, uni pracs as well. One of the huge challenges I know, particularly for people who are upskilling from the diploma to the teaching degree, is the That's time. That's what I just said, Liam. Well, no, you were t- oh, was it? I thought you were talking about diploma <laughs> yeah. pracs. No, I'm talking about teaching. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure you said diploma, practically. No, I said those that are, are upskilling from diplomas. Oh, sorry, I, mean, I missed that bit. Yeah, but no, I completely yeah. agree. But because even just the the leave that people have to take. Um, but even yeah. even but even with some degrees, I'm hearing now the amount of prax that people have to do is just I, I, I we count I counted with one person who's working at Northside. It was up to like twelve weeks of time yeah, they would have to take to get, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's true. Okay, well, maybe we can ask all of our listeners that if they're having a recruitment problem to put pen to paper, not email and not typewriters, not computers, but actual pen to paper and, yeah, write a letter to Dan the Man and CC in Scott Morrison or something. And um, you can't CC if you're sending letters. Send a, a, a <laughs> what do we call it, Romeo it. <laughs> do a Stetner of it. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, you can photocopy it then. <laughs> and, and send it, you know, and to your local member just about those recruitment challenges and saying what are you doing about the early education and care workforce. Yeah. And I'd like it if every peak organisation wrote a letter saying exactly the same thing. At the, as soon as they hear this podcast. Right. Great idea. Well, Mel, thank you very much for your time tonight. We should just give a quick peek behind the curtain. You you, you are an extra special guest, Mel, because you did this on very short notice. We had a previous plan for tonight for recording fell through, and I think Lisa probably got in touch with you, what, six hours ago in terms of when we recorded this, and you were totally up for this discussion. So we really appreciate you coming on and doing this with us. I, I feel like I didn't do as good as a job as I was hoping I would do. Oh, but I really you did a brilliant really job. <laughs> I really feel passionate about, um, you know, the sector getting together and um, and and trying to get some real solutions for us because I know that everyone's really stressed and under pressure and it's the last thing we need to be because um, at the end of the day we all just have you know, a, a massive and important job. So I hope we can get some traction and some good things happening so that these problems aren't, don't continue to grow and actually stop and we can find some solutions together. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. Thanks to our guest for this episode, Mel Armstrong. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.
Um, obviously, you're based in Queensland, but do you, are you hearing? No, she's things? not based in Queensland. Oh, why do I keep... She's based in New South Wales. Oh. <laughs> I was going to correct you the first time, but I thought, oh yeah, why not? Yeah. Ignore me. Brain is fried today because we've been spending a lot of time trying to of recruitment today. I think I've had about three interviews today, but sorry. <laughs> I, I, you obviously. I get 